My name is Melody Ito, and I'm a part of the CG community, Great Hills. Uh, yeah, thank you. I needed that support. Um, I'm going to be uh, reading from Romans 10, 12 to 17 in Japanese. Um, all right. That's not Japanese, that's English. Okay. ユダヤ人と外国人の区別はありません。同じ種がユダヤ人にとっても外国人にとっても主であり、求める者には誰でも恵みを惜しみなく与えてくださるからです。主の皆を呼び求める者は誰でも救われるのです。しかし、主に信
but it's just such an encouragement to know that we've received power, but that power is for a purpose. It's not just so we can have power, but it's then we can use it to glorify God and to serve other people and to share and be witnesses, live that purpose out. And that was a huge takeaway and encouragement from the One Place series that I've remembered all through this. And to, to be reminded that we have this spirit and this power from God and to see that in action at times when God does things that we're like amazed by uh, has just been really awesome. One of my big encouragements would be um, share your life with the people that you are intentionally seeking in the gospel. Um, don't just let these people become projects. Don't allow these one place rhythms to become a checklist to, to do so you can feel good or feel like you're, you are self-righteous before God. Um, it's like one of the greatest joys that I've had this, this past semester is just these guys that I'm sharing with and having these conversations with, they're some of my best friends. Like we, we, we get to chat, hang out, mess around, um, go do fun stuff together, go watch movies. Like these guys are, I love these guys. Um, and it's just, if I, if I had seen them as projects or people to fix or to convince that, that Jesus is Lord or something, then I think I would go into those relationships wrongly and sinfully and pridefully, but seeing my own brokenness and sharing that with them and sharing them with them how Jesus meets me there and how Jesus can also meet you there um, has really changed the way that I, that I see people, made it so much more joyful to uh, just share with these guys. Um, I freaking love this church, y'all. Man, praise God. Y'all are great. Um, God is good. Amen. All the time is what you're supposed to say, but amen is good too. Uh, hey, it is good to be worshiping with you all this morning. Uh, One Place, Act 2, Part 2. We ready? Good, good. Well, hey, as we discussed uh, last week, we'll be talking a bunch about the nations. And so a very high-level overview, in case you weren't here last week or in case you uh, weren't able to be caught up yet, we're diving back into our one-place distinctive as a church. We believe that God has intentionally placed people where they might have the best chance to come to know him because God loves humanity and because God wants all humanity to be saved. And within this, we believe that God not only places us where we might have the best chance of coming to know him, but he strategically places us where we live or work or we play in order to be his ambassadors as well. And so last week, we talked about our one places and caught up on that some and began to think about the nations with the idea that our one place might not just be our neighborhood, but it actually might be the nations. And that's what we want to focus on today, going from neighborhood into the nations, something that we care deeply about as a church. And so this week and next week, and then at our missions intensive on Friday and Saturday at the end of this month, we're really going from neighbors to nations. Uh, I want to do two things today. Uh, one, I want to give a large biblical overview of the nations and what that means so you can see why we care about this so much as a church. And then the second thing that I want to do is I want to practically begin to dive into how can we be a part of this as a church family. And so a large biblical overview and then how can we be a part. That's kind of the, the two-scope focus, if you will, today. I thought there was a slide of that, but that's all right if there's not, okay? For you type A'ers, that's where we're going today. I usually don't give you where we're going, but this is for you today, God's gift, all right? Um, once again, we're going through our distinctives as a church this year, really trying to reroute ourselves and a part of our missions distinctive, and I say a part because last week I read the evangelism distinctive in full and people were like, that was way too long. 
And I'm like, you ever see me write emails? Shoot, you write the distinctives in, all right? Uh, but the first part of our, of our missions distinctive, it reads this. It says, until the whole world hears, we will be relentless in our pursuit until every tongue, tribe, people, and culture has an opportunity to hear the gospel and respond to Jesus. We feel this way because we believe that God feels this way, and we want to see 100 churches planted internationally, and I believe that we're going to get to see this done if we maintain a heart and a zeal to see other people who do not currently even have opportunity to know Christ come into the family of God. From beginning of the end to the Bible, you actually see God desiring that every single tongue, tribe, nation, people, and culture would enter into his family to be worshiping him on that great day that God's redemptive plan has always been for the world or for the nations. It was God's master plan from the start. Diversity wasn't just this cool idea that the church came up with 20 years ago to be hip to the world, right? It was actually from God's design from the very beginning that the kingdom of heaven would be uh, this multi-ethnic, multicultural place where all tongues and tribes and nations would come to worship him, and that one day as we hear the scripture read over us in Japanese today and as we uh, hear it read in English and as we hear it read in, in Arabic or whatever it might be, we would actually be reunited with each other to see even some of the beauty of how God has made us and all of those things would be worship and praise to God. This is God's plan. This is not a church's plan or some cool thing that we get to now feel like, oh, I go to this cool church. They read in Japanese. No, 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 this is the kingdom of God, and we want to best reflect the kingdom of God here as well. All the nations represent this mosaic beauty of who God is. And even though the fall fractured this some, there's been separation and division. The gospel is actually working to restore this fracture, to bring everyone into the kingdom of God. This is God's longing, and it should be ours as well. This is the heart of God, as we'll see here in a moment. And I believe that we are molded in the image of God. And so in order to be like God, we must have a heart like his. And if this is God's heart, then the nations must be our heart as well. And the more the nations become our heart, the more we are actually operating in the Imago Dei, in the image of God, the way that you and I were designed to operate. And the more we care, the more we feel God's heart, the more we see God move, the more you and I love God even. And so we care about the nations deeply. We're going to look throughout Scripture to see God's heart. I'm going to begin in the book of Genesis. We're going to end up in the book of Revelation. We're going to camp out on the Romans passage that we just read, and we still go get out of here on time today, y'all. Amen. Hallelujah. Look, y'all talking now, right? right? Shoot, speaking in tongues today. Just fake tongues, by the way, okay? Don't nobody freak out, okay? Genesis chapter 12 is where I want to begin, beginning in verse 1. It reads this. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. 
This is the Abrahamic covenant. It's one of the most important promises that God gave in the entire scripture and is repeated over and over again throughout the scriptures. It's a, a plumb line of sorts, a, a re-straightening that the prophets often remind Israel the very reason why God began a nation out of them in the first place because Abraham is not an Israelite at this moment. That doesn't exist. God is doing something new to begin to try to craft in the redemption of humanity. This is the thesis statement of the scriptures in a lot of ways. And there's a whole lot of beauty here. We can unpack a whole sermon on just these three verses. In fact, we've done that in the past. But the concluding words, right, the, the final credits of this covenant that God has made is the nations. It says, all the families on the earth shall be happy in Christ. This is one of the main promises of God, that God wants the nations to be blessed. In other words, 4,000 years ago, when God was speaking to Abraham in that desert, his eye was not just set on Abraham, but was also set on you for your redemption. That God wanted the nations, you, to be blessed in him. God had a plan from the beginning to redeem all the nations. In fact, if you know your Bible, Genesis 11, the nations are scattered because of their arrogance and rebellion. And it's almost as if the Bible can't take a breath before God steps in and says, yes, I know that sin separated that, but I am working out a plan to regather the nations. God longs for the nations to come into the kingdom to know his grace. You see this all throughout Genesis, but we fast forward to Exodus, and in chapter 9, as God is delivering and doing all of these miracles and, 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 and these uh, foreshadows, and there's all this beauty and power and majesty, we see this in verse 16. It says, but for this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God wasn't just delivering Israel. He was setting your salvation in motion. God's heart is for everyone, for the nations. We can stop in the book of Joshua or we can stop in Ruth as we see God beginning to actually interweave the cultures into Israel's family history that they might be a part of God's redemptive plan as well through Ruth. We could stop at the Davidic covenant or the Psalms poetry like we did last week, but I want to stop at Solomon's temple because this is another extremely important moment in Israel's history. You see, Israel was enslaved to Egypt, and then they got out, and they were wandering, and then they were trying to establish as a country, and finally, after David's death, we see Solomon begin to establish the reign. This is Israel's victorious moment. They're finally making it as a country. They're no longer slaves. They have their own military power and might. They're finally beginning to be established. And all of a sudden, in the middle of this victorious moment, you see you and I, Gentile, kind of pop into the picture all of a sudden. This is Israel's crowning achievement. And yet, in 2 Chronicles verse six, or chapter 6, verse 32 and 33, we see this. Likewise, when a foreigner who is not of your people Israel, comes from a far country for the sake of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When he comes and prays towards this house, then hear from heaven your dwelling place and do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you in order that all the peoples of the earth might know your name and fear you as do your people Israel." that they may know that this house that I have built is called by your name. 
I mean, think about this moment here, right? It would be like winning Olympic gold, and then halfway through the anthem or the medal ceremony, the victor kind of stops and is like, ah, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, that country too. Hey, we in this together. Come on, represent, right? Wakanda forever. That would be a strange moment, right? This is your crowning achievement, and yet it's almost as if God can't help but believe through the Bible his desire for the redemption of all mankind. In other words, even in other people's victory, God is thinking about the redemption of all. Now you missed that. Even in your salvific victory, your salvation, God is thinking about the redemption of all. Nobody's salvation, nobody's establishing is for them themselves. God wants the nations to be blessed. God is always thinking about those who do not yet know him, trying to restore humanity. Praise God. It's why you are a Christian today, because God did not stop with Solomon in the temple, but he saw you. He saw you, family of God, and he is inviting us in always. We could camp out in virtually any of the prophets Because they're all, though prophets of Israel, and often writing to Israel, they preach the words of God. And whenever God communicates, laced in his speech is the nations. So the prophets can't help but communicate about that. For time, though, we come to Jesus, the Son of Man that was coming for the nations. We see this as evidenced even at the end of Jesus' ministry. In Matthew chapter 28, which Orieji just even spoke over us a moment ago, we see, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Or Acts 1.8 that Nick talked about on his video. It says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and then in Judea, and then in Samaria, and then to the ends of the earth. You see, no matter which gospel writer, they always make the last words of Jesus be about the nations. I mean, think about the reality of that. As as Jesus rises victorious over sin, one of his main concerns is you understanding that victory, you coming into the family of God. You see, this is why I ain't the Messiah. One of many reasons why I ain't the Messiah, okay? Because if I rose from the dead, I'd be like, Right? I see you was doubting me too, weren't you? Look at me now, right? Come on, come worship, right? That's what I would have been like. Jesus, though, is consistently, literally, with Mary, the first person that he sees. What does he tell her to do? Go and tell others that I'm risen. Jesus is always thinking about other people understanding the power of the gospel. He wants the nations, he wants humanity into the household of God. Jesus is concerned about the nations knowing him. And as the church is being born, we see many of the prophecies that we actually skipped over uh, in introducing themselves into the birth of the church. For example, Joel chapter 2 talks about all of these Gentiles that are coming in. And in Acts chapter 2, verses 8 through 11, which I guarantee if in your Bible you underline and write stuff, you ain't got none of this underlined or circled. Because it seems so random, but this is part of the promise of God being fulfilled. It says this, And how is it that we hear, each of us, in his own native language, 
Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of uh, Libya coming to or, or belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. You see, the first act of the church in many ways was the welcoming in of the nations. This is the birth of the church here, y'all. And the first thing we see the church doing is speaking in tongues. And we want to get all charismatic and like, oh, is that for today? Don't worry about that. Look, the church is being invited in. The nations are coming, y'all. That's what Luke is concerned about. Not the gift, but the, the, the fulfillment of the promise of God. It was almost as if all throughout the Old Testament, there was like this lid on the nations that were coming in. But there was this pressure that was building. And upon the birth of the church, that lid bursted off and the nations were coming in, y'all. This is God's promise being fulfilled. Now there's Africans and, and Asians and, and Dominicans and, and Mexicans and, and Europeans and, and Middle Easterners and even them island boys <laughs> trying to make it. What's coming into the kingdom of God? Right? Everybody is getting saved. God is for the nations. Some of y'all are like, what just happened? You're more godly if you didn't get that reference. All right, just say that, Okay. In Romans, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, they all talk about the nations coming. In fact, those letters are now written to the nations. You peep that? Right? Like, like the letters are no longer just to Israel about the nations. Now they're being written to the Gentiles because they're a part of the family of God. And it all culminates on that great day when before our king, we see this in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. It says, they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. It goes on in chapter 7, verse 9, to say, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Ah, but, but here's the trick. Uh, we're not there yet. This is not the end of the story. Unless Christ came back and we just missed it or something, which that ain't even how it's going to happen. So that didn't happen yet. Jesus hasn't yet returned. That means that this is a foreshadowing of what is going to happen, meaning there's still work to be done amongst the nations. And since this is God's heart, as we just saw evidence throughout Scripture, it should be our heart as well. Even in our main text today, in Romans, which we'll conclude by camping out on this passage some with the biblical overview in our minds, we see God's heart very plainly for the nations. And I want to ask, how can we grow in our heart for the nations? How can we grow to have a heart that's more aligned with God's heart? Let me not we it, let me you it. How can you grow, right, to have a heart that's more aligned with God's heart for the nations? What is God calling you to do. As Orieji even spoke over us a moment ago, God has anointed you. If you've been filled with the Spirit of God, then you have God dwelling in you. Each of us has a part to play. How can we grow in that? For some of us, it means praying or giving. 
For some of us, it means sharing the gospel with our neighbor that doesn't look like us. For some of it, it means establishing this church well so that we can better send people faster and stronger. For others of us, it actually means going and planting churches where there are none. What is it for you? Romans 10, notice several things about this that I think answer that question for us with the biblical overview in our mind, how can we grow in this? And the first part of that in verse 12, you see that there is no distinction, it says there. God wants everyone to get saved, to become a child of God, to have a relationship with him. He doesn't care where they live or who they voted for or who they currently worship. He doesn't really care their past sin struggles or whether or not they know of him well or they've never even heard his name before. They want, uh, God wants the, the man and the woman to come into the family of God. He wants them to be saved. There's no distinction, family. Once again, personalize this. Don't just make this a they thing, make this a you thing. This is good news. Because when the book of Romans was being written, nobody ever heard of America, That place was not on anybody's radar, and many of us weren't here anyway. In fact, most of us. Yet God was orchestrating in his redemptive plan this even to be written so that you would come into the family of God as well. If you personalize it and you realize that God desires all people to be saved, and he did what it took so that you could be saved, our heart would bend towards others as well. There's no distinction God wants everyone. God wanted you and he wants others as well. The gospel isn't just for the Jew, and it sure as heck isn't just American. It is for the nations. What does God want to do through you? Now let me ask you a question, because I think it's helpful to even prep our hearts for this. What is God's motivation in saving everyone? Like, could you answer that theologically? I know it's hard to think and listen at the same time, but I want you to really think about that for a moment, okay? What is God's motivation upon saving everyone? Like, what do you think the theological answer is there? Is it so that God would have more worshipers? Is it so that he will have more servants in the kingdom? I would say it's an easy no. He could have just created angels to do that, like he did. Could have created more of them if he wanted that. Is it because that God wants something from us? That we would give him glory, we think? I don't think so. God isn't needy of anything. You see, God is not a taskmaster pharaoh who needs us to build his pyramids the way that most of us view God. Now, y'all missed that. That's how most of us view our father. Like a pharaoh who needs something from us to give him something as if he's lacking anything. But we know that that's not true about our God God wants the nations to be saved. God wants people's salvation because he's benevolent. Because God is a giver. Um, Sid, maybe a little bit more shockingly for some of us and more plainly, he wants the nations to come in so that he could give more. Because he loves. How he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. God wants to give and give and give to give his mercy, to give his grace, to give his love, or as this passage says, to give his riches, is what it says there. 
Can you throw that back up on the screen? The, the riches of Christ that are being given. This isn't prosperity preaching either. This is his glory because it is God's glory to bless. Because it's who God is. God desires to give because in his nature he is benevolent and he wants to give and give and give. Genesis chapter 12, I want them to come in so that I might bless them is what God says. It's the fulfillment of God. Once again, like last week, the motivation to come to Jesus is not just what you escape, death, hell. It's what you enter into, life. You get God when you come to God. You get the riches of Christ. You get to know this freedom. You get joy or hope or peace or justice or mercy or goodness or glory or beauty. There's a reason why everybody on the earth or almost everybody on the earth wants to be rich, y'all. I believe that God has hardwired that inside of us. It's our soul longing for something that many people falsely assume this material world can satisfy but we've been built, we've been designed by God to receive the spiritual riches in Christ, to receive God himself, who is the richest or the most glorious being to ever live. It's why you desire to have better because your soul is desiring God. This is true of all mankind, family of God. And God wants people to be saved because God wants to give. I know that's shocking to some of my super tight theology people, but just think about it for a moment. Like, this isn't about us receiving, it's about God giving. It's who he is. He is a, a generous God by nature. Like a, a good parent does not want to receive something from their son or their daughter. They want to give to them. God is a way better father than you and I can ever be. God wants to give. This is almost unbelievable news, but it's... Gospel news, it is good news. And then what you see in this text, with that foreground of God's desire for people to come in that he might bestow blessing upon them, you see this mixture of the need to go and the need to proclaim, which is why we care so much about church planting as a church. First of all, the need to proclaim. God wants everyone to be saved, but how can they call on him in whom they've never heard of? Or we preach the good news, why? So that others might hear. Or faith comes by hearing and hearing these words of Christ. Often in our American evangelism, we try to preach with our actions, but actions don't tell somebody how to get saved. Now, they should accompany my mouth because they reflect the beauties of what I'm believing, but faith comes through hearing, and people need to hear the gospel once again, you and I have been created in the image of God, and literally all of life that exists exists because God's mouth spoke it into existence. And so it makes sense that spiritual life would be birthed in someone when you and I speak into their souls and God uh, moves in their hearts to believe and they come to life. Faith comes through hearing and through proclaiming family of God. It's why the devil does not attack your actions, by the way. Y'all tracking with that, right? Like, you've never really been afraid to do something nice for someone, or very rarely, okay? Now, he may try to create selfishness in you and, and try not to move your hands to help, but he doesn't produce fear in you often, does he? He produces fear when you have to say something. 
He produces fear when you have to communicate the gospel because our actions are beautiful. Yes, they accompany the gospel, but they do not win people from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of life. Words do that. And so he attacks our words because to proclaim is necessary that people would know him. Proclaiming is necessary for salvation, family. You may have been intrigued to listen to the gospel because of someone's actions, like I even was in my father. But none of us in here were saved because we saw somebody do something. We were saved because we heard somebody say something and then believed in that message. This is what faith comes through. Hearing, proclaiming is important. And so I want to plant 100 churches nationally and 100 churches internationally because we want to proclaim how people can come to life. We want the gospel to be spread. Secondly, though, proclamation is important, but notice that presence is also necessary. And as a church, we want to be a part of this command by sending others. Verse 15, how can they preach unless they are sent, the text says. So we want to send qualified and and called and character-oriented people into the nations to reach the nations that God's will might be accomplished and that his name might be glorified in him giving them the gift of salvation. Now, how we do this is important. We see that all throughout scripture and throughout church history, we're humble we're culturally sensitive. We're, we're not trying to evangelize American culture like we're any good. We're all messy anyway, right? We're sharing Jesus is what we're doing. We go as learners. We see the image of God there. All of this is necessary, but the truth is very plain. Where Jesus is not, we need to be there so that Jesus might be there through us. This is the reality of all of Scripture. Now, some people, they're going to hear and not believe. Verse 16 says there, and that's okay right? Like, that's not, our, uh, uh, that's not our burden in that sense. You know, I think sometimes we can feel burdened because we share and then people don't come to Christ, but our job is not to change hearts. Our job is to communicate to ears, and then it's between them and God to do the rest. Now, we pray, and we plead, and we labor, and we do it as if it's up to us, but faith is a gift of God, and we're disobedient to proclaim where he has us, where our presence is. And so as we proclaim, and as we send, or as we go, we begin to fulfill what Jesus is about, the nations coming to know him. How can they call on someone they've never heard, family of God? And there are many people who have never heard the name of Jesus And how can they hear unless someone's willing to send? You know, if we always just keep all of our best, then how are they going to hear? We need to send as well, and we're willing to send them. We feel like God has actually called us as a church in this really beautiful, even a pivotal position within reaching the nations for the gospel. We believe that because, first of all, God has given us, a church, as a church, a call to plant 100 churches internationally. And whenever God calls you into something, he also provides what you need to accompany that call. Uh, that's a word for someone in here today, okay? Like, whenever God calls you to something, he trains and equips and blesses and, and readies and, and patiently through his own equipping mechanisms. Maybe you're not ready today. Maybe it's a decade from now. But whenever God calls, he also always provides what you need to accomplish that call. And we feel called by God as a church into this. We want to be obedient to that. That's why we believe God's going to have us do this, family. 
Secondly, though, even with this call, there's certain really practical things that we see that we believe uh, gives us some assurance that we can actually see the nation's reach with the gospel, see churches planted even through our church here, like even where he's placed us, I believe, is strategic for mission. For example, as a church, we want to be close to UT's campus. It would have been very easy by now to move up into the suburbs somewhere to find some land for a whole lot cheaper and finally build a place so we can have a building. That's really important for us. We talk about that all the time. But we feel like we'd be forsaken our mission because we want to be close to UT. And here's one of the reasons on top of many others why. Because at the peak of the American mission movement, one in 40 college students were committed to going overseas. And so if that applied today to UT's campus, where not all the other campuses around Texas, not even the other campuses around Austin, just UT's campus, where one in 40 people were willing to go, and we sent just as one church teams of 10 to go over into other places, knowing that some people might have to come back, there's some delays, there's, there might be a longer effort. So teams of 10 to go plant churches, our vision of planting 100 churches would be accomplished not in 50 years, but in four years. Y'all hear that? All right. Like if God sparked calling and revival in our students on our campuses, and if they begin to believe that they could actually change the world for the gospel, because college students do believe that, because they're right, they can. Because the Spirit of God lives inside of them, and oftentimes as adults, we lose that calling and that vision, and we begin to get sucked into the cares of this world. But oftentimes it's the college students that believe, I can do anything, and they can through Christ who strengthens them. And if they answer that call, we would see 100 churches planted overseas in the next four years, family. What seems to be an impossible task of 100 churches to a place where we've never even been all of a sudden becomes a really easy reality. All of a sudden, our vision isn't too big. It's like substantially too small. We believe that God is positioning us to do things like that. God's heart is for the nations, and ours should be too. Now, like last week, we can end our sermon here. We could be like, God cares about the nations, so so should you. Go to the nations, all right? Pray for the nations. Give financially to the nations. Do something for the nations. And, and that is true, but it's moralistic in nature. There's something more beautiful that motivates us more fully than duty and is delight in Christ. Even in the book of Romans that we just studied, notice where that comes. It's in chapter 10. Paul actually spent eight chapters laying out the beauty of the gospel before he ever talked about the implications of the gospel. And so it's not duty that demands us to go. It's actually delight in Christ that beckons us to be a part of what he is a part of. The goal doesn't motivate us. The gospel does. How beautiful on the feet of those who bring the good news is what the text reads. Well, that's actually a quote from the book of Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7, it says, How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. Isaiah 52, if you know your Bibles, is right before Isaiah 53, which is about the suffering servant, the crucified Messiah that was to come. 
The true beautiful feet are not the missionaries who lay down their lives to proclaim. It is the missionary who made himself human life that you might hear the gospel. You see, especially us as Gentiles would have never, ever, 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 ever heard the gospel without our missionary God deciding to come. Without him deciding to go into a place that was uncomfortable, if you will, for him, that you might hear the gospel. This missionary was willing to sacrifice more than you and I could ever imagine sacrificing. You see, Jesus went up to that mountain to proclaim peace. Can you put that verse back on the screen for me? And if you look at the structure of that, there's all this beauty he went and proclaimed and, and published, if you will. He, he initiated peace and salvation, yet nobody saw this missionary's feet as beautiful. In fact, nobody even saw peace. What they saw was violence. You see, Jesus' feet were pierced, and that's where the beauty came in, up on that mountain of Calvary so that you and I can be saved Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans tells us. Why? Because when Jesus called upon the name of the Lord, God turned his face in that sense. You see, when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The Father did not answer because that's what you deserve, family of God. So that now when you and I call out, my God, my God, your God reigns, you and I will have the voice or the ear of God. He turns to us because he turned from Christ. Christ took our place, family. He took our place as the ultimate missionary when we weren't willing to go. He took our place to provide salvation where we are able to create it. Christ does all because God wants to give. He's benevolent. He wants you to know this love. That's the beauty of the sacrifice that makes us be willing to sacrifice that others may see our king dying on that mountain so that they might go to the mountain of God and live forever. And so next week we'll get more specific as we think about what are we doing for the nations. And we'll try to get practical and, and how can we actually dive into this. But I hope you see the heart of God for the nations throughout the Bible and why we care about this as a church. And I hope that you're beginning to ask the question, right? Like, like how can I be a part of this? How can I make a one place, not just here in Austin, Texas, but how can I be faithful throughout the nations? For if the salvation of the world is God's plan, and we take no care in the salvation of the world, then you and I are opposing the will of God. We need to care. I'll end with this quote from a famous missionary, William Booth. He says, not called, did you say? Not heard the call, I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and you will hear him bid you go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. The Will family, to quote very loosely another missionary, if the president were to come in here right now, and if he were to assign us a task, don't care what you think about our current or past presidents, that'd be a pretty cool, like, task, a pretty cool assignment. You've been assigned by the president of the United States to do something on his behalf. If being commissioned by an earthly king would be an honor, then how could be being commissioned by an eternal king be seen as a sacrifice? not a sacrifice family this is what we get to do because God is glorious we've been called and so let's pray and support and structure and send and go and give and do what it takes that his name might be known because he's worthy of it listen I with overwhelming affection love you guys and until the whole world hears let's be about this family amen
I love you guys. Let's pray. Yeah, thank you, Jesus, that you saw me, Gentile. I am in the family of God. I am who you say that I am. We sing because you have called me your son. You have called us your, your daughters, your, your sons, your beloved, your brothers, your friends. We get relationship with you. And so, Father, I pray for anybody in here who may not have that relationship with you. Friend, I want you to know that God desires you to come into the kingdom of God. Apart from him, there is no life in this life or in the next one. But as we believe in Jesus, man, we get life now and praise God. The smallest foreshadowed taste that we taste in worship or we taste in community, that will be ours forever in Jesus. So God, we thank you for that reality. For those of us who have called upon your name. But God, I pray that we would not just see our own salvation and receive the blessing, but that we would see that every time you call people into the family, it's also for others as well. And that we would feel that call here in Austin in our one place, that we would feel that call amongst the nations, that whatever you might have us do, God, whether it seems big or small, that you would allow us to be a part in your redemptive plan of redeeming the world to yourself, Christ. For you are worthy to receive all glory and all honor and all power forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to end and a couple of worship songs, and I took up all my preaching time, so I don't really got time to talk about communion. Y'all know what this is, all right? <laughs> but in case you don't, we pinnacle at this, okay? And listen, at any point during these two songs, if you're a believer,